I'm Debbie Georgias, and welcome to America Can We Talk. Today, we'll talk about America not so divided, comparing the El Paso rallies, Trump and Beto. Alfonso Rachel joins me of Zoe Nation. You'll love hearing from him. And the Senate Intelligence Committee, Democrats announced they found absolutely no evidence of collusion. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. I have some clips we're going to play for you in just a moment, and they are Related to the 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 rallies that happened in El Paso, Texas yesterday. I do this show from Dallas, but El Paso's down on the border. And yesterday at the border, President Trump held a rally where he spoke to thousands and thousands and thousands of Texans and Americans about the need for the border wall, for funding for the border wall. And our own Texas Senator Ted Cruz also spoke at the rally. Clips from both of them. And comparing them with the rally that was held by the anti-wall faction, including that rally being led or organized by Beto O'Rourke, the Democrat who ran for the U.S. um, Senate, ran for Ted Cruz's seat and lost this past election cycle. But the reason I want to hit on this story is to make the point, make several points, but one big point is the effort of the media to try to say America's about equally divided. Some people want the wall, some don't. I'm telling you, the people who live with the consequences of an insecure and unsecured border, they care. First clip, this is from our, this is Ted Cruz, our senator from Texas. No sound at all. Built a wall and the crossings plummeted. And now we've seen the highest traffic crossing point is now further south in the Rio Grande Valley. It's not complicated what we need to do, which is stop the human traffickers, stop the drug traffickers, and build the wall. Ed Cruz at the rally. And let me say something that our friends in the media never seem to want to convey. In Texas, we welcome legal immigrants. Yahoo. And I won't forget the men who died, who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up next to you and defend her still today. of the legendary Rio Grande, where, by the way, I don't know, you heard, right? Today, we started a big, beautiful wall right on the Rio Grande. We saw in El Paso. I got to tell you, folks, I love this rally. I urge you to listen to all of it. In fact, if you go to my website, americacommingtalk.org. I put the link up to this whole rally. It's real. I mean, you can watch it while you're cleaning your desk, when you're organizing your files, washing dishes. 
watch this rally because it was really, really inspiring. I played that music portion, just a short little bit of it, because the whole rally, everyone there was caught up in the passion of that song, Love the USA, and President Trump made reference to the wall being started. Now, there are portions of wall along the southern border already, very uh, fragmented, and there are large portions of the southern border with no security at all. And so all along, this discussion about the wall has not been a wall built from sea to shining sea, but rather a wall to make the border secure in places where they have no other way to secure it. And that's what Trump was talking about a moment ago. They started the wall along the Rio Grande. One of the arguments of the left is, well, you can't have a wall. We got a river down there. You can have a wall if it is an area where there's no other adequate, reasonable way to secure the border. So this was the Trump rally. And just to be clear on the numbers, at a minimum, 70,000 people tried to get tickets. You had to get a ticket to get inside this thing. The rally was sold out. There were people flooding into the parking lots all around. They could watch on big screens outside or at least hear on big uh, speakers outside. They could hear the rally. The rally was packed. We're talking about, and, and the numbers kept varying, and obviously the left-wing sources tried to act like no one was there, and, and others were saying, no, no, no. But the official numbers are something in the range of, we know 70,000-plus people tried to get tickets. We know the, the arena was sold out, packed to the gills, standing room only. We know the parking lots were packed. It was something in the range of 30,000, 35,000 people down there. Contrasted with the rally by Beto, with Beto O'Rourke, who is, again, the Democrat candidate for U.S. Senate from Texas, he held a counter rally and against the wall rally. Here's a clip from Beto. After that wall was built, we can show the rest of the country as we make our stand here together tonight that walls do not make us safer. We know that walls do not save lives. Walls end lives. And the reason I want, I want to make this first five for today from America Can We Talk, my first five, I want to make just a few points. Number one, the outside top estimate for the number of people who showed up for the Beto O'Rourke opposed the rally, opposed the wall rally was like 9,000. The outside max, 9,000. And the Trump rally has something in the range, not 10 times that, but something in that vicinity. Had 70,000 people wanting to come, thousands and thousands, place was packed. Second point, El Paso, Texas is Beto O'Rourke's hometown. This is his home. These are his peeps. These are his people. These are the ones he represented in Congress. He could not get anything but a straggly small bunch of people together in his hometown. Third, this town, El Paso, Texas, I looked it up, is 67% Hispanic. A lot of the argument by the American left is that Hispanic Americans are offended, they're outraged, they find the idea of a wall along the southern border protecting America's border, preventing people from entering America illegally is somehow offensive and obnoxious and Hispanics don't like it. But that is not true. There's been plenty of polling that shows this. There's a large swath of Americans who are legal citizens of Hispanic background who support the wall. But I want to draw your attention to what Beto was saying right there. Walls don't, his line was, walls don't save lives. Um, Walls end lives. It depends, you know, this is a typical kind of left-wing, you know, kind of clever-sounding mantra, but you really should think about what he's saying. He is saying that a wall that will protect America 
protect America from people coming into our country, not not legally, not attempting to come here to become citizens, not seeking asylum, just sneaking into our country, that those people are to be protected because maybe someone will be hurt if we have a wall and they, the people cannot sneak into our country illegally. They may end up staying in their home countries and can't get here illegally. He's more worried about the right of people who are not citizens, illegal, illegals or non-citizens, their right to come to America than it is about protecting the American citizens and the safety and security a wall will bring. He's more worried, as is the Democrat Party in Washington, about making sure that people who have no legal right to enter can pour over our border. He's making a plea that maybe some people, if they can't make it over, they may face an unfortunate fate in their home countries. I don't want that to happen, but he is not giving an ounce of weight to the idea that Americans actually are suffering as a result of the behavior of not everyone who crosses the southern border illegally, but many thousands and thousands of illegal border crossers who are human traffickers, who are drug traffickers, who are contributing to our massive heroin problem in this country, who are trafficking girls and women and young girls or human traffickers. None of that safety of the American people is even weighed into the equation when the Democrats look at this issue. Last point is this. It appears there's a report out of Washington that the uh, conference committee, the Democrats and Republicans, who are coming together to try to come up with a proposal to not have another government shutdown as of this Friday, so trying to prevent a shutdown, they had to come to an agreement relating to the border wall. It appears they've reached a deal. This isn't necessarily that Trump signed off on this, but the House and Senate members, uh, Democrats and Republicans who are meeting, have come up with this deal. Essentially, they want to give Trump $1.38 billion of the $5.7 billion he asked for for the wall. So they're giving him a pittance of, you know, a portion, a one-fifth, essentially, of the amount he asked for. But something to keep in mind, if you doubt me, if you doubt the idea that Democrats do not care about border security, they do want to do everything they can to facilitate people coming into America having no legal status, staying here, get lost within our sanctuary cities, lost somewhere within our borders, not able to be having, with our country, having no ability to keep track of them, keep tabs on them. This And the reason they want to do that, because they ultimately think someday, they, the Democrats, will have the White House, the Senate, and the House, and they will pounce, and they will make every illegal alien in this country a legal citizen. This is building up the Democrat voting base for America's future. This is why the Democrats do not care about the border, do not care about border security. One last point that was mentioned relating to the conference committee, the hang-up in the conference committee, the, the negotiating tactic the Democrats had, they don't want to give Trump money to build a wall where it's needed, but they did want, in fact, what they were bargaining for was to reduce the number of available beds to put illegal border crossers in as we hold them here prior to our reaching a point of having a hearing and determining whether they are entitled to asylum. Point is, they are trying to reduce the ability of the border patrol to keep our border secure, reduce the ability of America to contain the large swath of people trying to come into our country illegally. If you cut down the number of beds available, you make it impossible for Border Patrol to process those border crossers safely to reach a legal decision about whether or not they have a right to stay here 
and then send them home if they don't. If you eliminate the number of beds, you reduce the number of beds, you make it easier for illegal border crossing. This is the Democrats' goal. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Can We Talk. We come right back. At, we're going for, to a break for three seconds. Be right back. We're going to have Alfonso, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Alfonso Rachel, also known as Zoe of the Zoe Nation, join me. I hope we have him on, on the screen behind me. And you'll love talking to him. Stay tuned. Three-second break. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. If you've listened to my show for five years or so, you probably remember the name Alfonso Rachel. I had him on my show years ago. I actually... I couldn't remember how long ago I had him on, but he's just a great, great American, great citizen. He's an African-American who is a, he's a musician. He's got, he's got a band. He does musical thing. There he is right there. Um, he's, he's a musician, but he also has become just an amazingly fun and interesting conservative commentator. And he's joining me. <laughs> yeah, and he's joining me right now. Um, so I, and he actually has a new book out, which I'll hold up for you to see. A Solid Right Cross, and the subtitle is Biblical Boxing and Conservative Counterpunching Against Leftist Loons and Godless Goons. I mean, he does everything in the most, he had, touches in the most serious topics in the most entertaining way, and he likes to go by Zoe. Hello, sir. Hey, how you doing, Debbie? I'm great. I'm, it's nice to see you on the big screen here. Nice to have you. So, Good I'm to see put, you. You know, you have, your new book recounts many things I want to touch on, but just to start with, I want our listeners to hear how you, you used to be a musician, you still are a musician, but how or why did you transition from being a musician to being a political commentator? Well, you know, I, I've always known of music to be a powerful medium to convey messages. I mean, it's worked greatly for the left uh, and for the wrong reasons. And, you know, when I, when I realized what liberalism was about, because I used to consider myself a liberal. I mean, I was raised in Southern California. Come on. Uh, you know, I used to think of myself as a liberal and a Democrat. But when I found myself questioning the narrative, I saw how intolerant and unaccepting, you know, the, the so-called liberal musician is. And um, since I and I wanted to use the music to say, hey, man, let's let's address these issues. And they weren't having it. So I, I grabbed the camera. I set up shop and I just said, you know what, I'm just going to start you know, speaking what I believe. If I can't do it with fellow musicians, I'm just going to do this. I'd still like to make some music. I'd still like to promote the message with the music, but it's difficult to do. So I went with the uh, with the commentaries. Well, I just love them. I think you even started. Did you start in your basement? Is that right? Your garage? I eventually, it, uh, you know, I was I was teaching martial arts. And when I would close oh, yeah. up shop for the evening, I would I would do them out of my martial arts studio. And then I just, you know, to start doing them faster, I started doing them out of, uh, of my living room. People thought that was my basement because of the brick wall and stuff like that. It was actually my living room, but <laughs> that's where I started doing those. All right. Well, you did. You've done many commentaries. I have actually pulled so many clips. I could just play clips, but I really want to hear from you. But I have a bunch of them. Uh, one is you've done a really good job uh, arguing on the conservative side against the actually i do want to play one quick clip because it's very entertaining during the time that hillary clinton was running for president and she was this is um hillary clinton the minimum wage and small business thing and so i didn't label these but can you see which one that is matt okay i want you to hear this clip this is what you had to say this is alfonso talking about hillary clinton the minimum wage thing right 
Hey, welcome to the Zoloft. I hate you. I don't care. Democrats be like, Americans cannot afford tax cuts. Yet, Democrats insist that Americans can afford a minimum wage increase. Look here. Stop doing common core math with our economy. The left-wing culture likes to present itself like it's so above money. Like it's so dirty. And the more you have of it, the more filthy you are. Unclean! But they always want more money. And the more they're able to force our taxes, wages, and fees to be increased, the less satisfied they are. Minimum wage increases does not mean that you're going to be making more money. It's hard because too many people are sold on the illusion of prestige of a higher wage. But they don't understand that they're not really making more money. Just like they don't understand that they're really greedy. They hate the money makers, the job creators, but they want them to be forced to pay them more money. That's greedy. The covetous want the job creators to be taxed more because the covetous think they're going to benefit from it. That's greedy. And this greediness is blinding y'all. Where the camera at? And it makes it difficult to point out things like this. Why are you so demanding of the state to increase wages instead of being demanding of the state to decrease taxes? Let's say minimum wage is 10 bucks an hour, but after taxes, you're left with eight bucks an hour. Instead of demanding the state raise 10 bucks an hour to 12 bucks an hour, why not demand the state to stop itself from taxing you from 10 bucks an hour down to eight bucks an hour? I will tell you, that was a long clip. And I don't know if you could see what, the, could you see what, from where you are, what was playing, but you, honestly, to make a minimum wage discussion funny and fun and absolutely accurate, I mean, you just, you just had to love doing that. I, you know, I do enjoy doing it. And uh, I, the, the truth is enjoyable. People talk about the truth hurts. Like, oh, the truth feels good to me. <laughs> Okay, so these, I want to talk a little bit about, you have worked very hard to bring your conservative message, and you've been tripped up a bit by people on the, the leftist media, the, the Googles, the YouTubes. Describe the way you think, as a black conservative, being outspoken, how has this, has social media world tried to interfere with you? What's happened in your experience? Uh, it's, uh, it's quite a blow. Uh, you know, just to be able to, I mean, we're talking about the people who are all about the First Amendment and the right to speak your mind. And, and when you do speak your mind and if it doesn't square up with their narrative, they will silence you. Uh, they pretty much, you know, they, they've really put a dent in my livelihood. Uh, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Google, it's very difficult to find me. Uh, it's, it's cost me a lot of support. And uh, the only thing I can do is just uh, keep trying. Well, you used to be on PJTV, right? Yes, it was. That's where I had a zonation, and uh, I stopped doing the zonation with uh, with PJTV when they when they uh, when they went dark, and I continued on as the Zoloft. A lot of my audience, you know, I have over a hundred thousand followers on Facebook. Most of them don't even know that I do the Zoloft. They're like, "Hey, Zo, I haven't seen any of your, any of your commentary, man. I haven't seen you in months." And the objective of of these social media platforms is to keep you out of sight, out of mind. If people don't see you in their feeds, they will forget about you. So, how do people find you right now? Tell me where they go. Uh, if, oh, thank you. If they go to my, my website, bronzeserpentmedia.com, just think John uh, 314 through 16, bronzeserpentmedia.com. It has my social media contacts, uh, my uh, contacts, and uh, what I'm doing with my book, the Zoloft commentaries, the Zopium Den commentaries, and my band, 20 Pound Sledge. Because I have to tell you, my husband used to, he's the one that told me about you first. He was watching PJ TV. He's <laughs> like, have you seen this guy? He's funny. 
and he's brilliant and he's saying true things. He was even back, I don't know when that was, like 2010, I don't know when that was, but he would say he must drive the left crazy. <laughs> <laughs> or crazier. It's not a far crazy. drive for them, you know? Yeah, crazier. So you've been out there really since, I mean, you began this whole effort to be a black conservative commentator uh, in after right around 2000, is that right? What year did you yeah, start? It, you know, um, I, I did my first um, commentary on MySpace back in, in 2007, where I was talking about these things. And uh, yeah, to, promoting conservatism in the culture is basically is basically been my, my my whole standpoint. You know, not just for for blacks or or or, or uh, people of color or or whatever persuasion they are. Uh, conservatism is something that really fits everybody. It's just this yeah. republic that we're trying to preserve. And uh, I started doing it in them. And you know, with conservatives, it's been this this push to have political representation. We want that you know, strong political representation. I've been trying to tell conservatives, like, look, you need cultural representation. Your political representation is always going to be fragile and you're always going to think you're going to be underrepresented, under, underrepresented and it won't stand if you don't establish cultural representation. I'm taking notes here, uh, Zoe, because I love that expression. We need cultural representation. That's right. That whole idea that uh, Breitbart had about the, you know, politics are downstream from culture. And yeah, your point about culture is really, really huge. So you've been out there doing all this and, and giving commentary and finding running into some brick walls because the social media folks don't want you to give out your message. So I'm curious, I, I would love to ask you like how you respond to a couple of things that conservatives are arguing about all that or defending against all the time. One being, what is your response to people who say that there's just that this society is permeated with white privilege permeated with unfairness, permeated white supremacy. I mean, and, and so the, the whole kind of we are the victims and we're fighting back kind of sets us up as up as, as in battle before we start a discussion. So what's your reaction to all that cultural movement? I agree. I, I totally agree with these people who say that there's white privilege. I mean, look at Hillary Clinton. It's like, you guys want white privilege. Why don't you guys just start there? It's like, oh, now all of a sudden you get quiet. It's like, well, those who are all about white privilege, they say, hey, you know what, conservatives, Give go, go, if they want to to shoot, uh, spit that out there, go ahead and give them the rope and let them hang themselves. Since you know the Democrat Party is the party of lynching anyway, uh, the Democrat Party is the apartheid party. The Democrat Party is the party that instituted white privilege in the first place. They're the ones who who uh, pushed to demand that slavery stay legal. They're the, they're the party that demanded the revocation of civil rights. They're the ones who got in the way of voting rights. They're the party that is made that demanded for blacks to be a second class uh, citizen and let and have uh, the policy for white people to have all these privileges. So if, if people want to, these Democrats want to talk about white privilege, I'll be like, yeah, I agree. That's all you all day. I like that. Okay, so what do you think now about there's been a um, the in the actually under President Obama it really began the whole movement of Black Lives Matter. And I think a lot of people, obviously, the name of the movement is well chosen. Of course, Black Lives Matter, as do everyone, all lives and blue lives and, and everyone's lives matter. But you know, I think we get to a point where we aren't discussing the issues anymore because we're defending against uh, the inherent accusation of Black Lives Matter, which is you think that we don't matter, you think this doesn't matter. So, how do, what, what's a way forward for society to try to to get past the antagonism the Black Lives Matter movement is creating? Well, you know, this is another one of those areas where, with conservatives. I think conservatives they really get defensive about this, and, and you know, I'm sorry to say that they kind of drop the ball. Um, just like I was saying, like you know, conservatives reject 
white privilege. They said, there's no white privilege. It's like, no, actually, yes, there is. There is. There is a history of white privilege. And it was instituted by the Democrat Party. Now, the thing with Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter is going off the narrative that the police are abusive and uh, they're bullies and they're this and they're that. And for conservatives, you know, I know back to badge, you know, uh, you know, back to blue and, and, and blue lives matter. But you know what? Conservatives, once again, don't drop the ball because there has been a history of police being abusive to black people. And you know who they were? They were Democrats. They like to bring up, you have you know, these cops out there releasing dogs on black folks and unleashing hoses on them. It's like, okay, well, yeah, yeah, we know that there's a history of that. That was different. Bull Connor? Bull Connor was a Democrat and a member of the KKK. All those people, that those cops out there that you guys are worried about, that are, that are intruding on, on black lives, that was in a Democrat-run state, in a Democrat-run county, in a Democrat-run municipality with a Democrat police force. They were all Democrats and members of the KKK. So we know what you're talking about. Don't blame us. Don't blame the cops in general. Don't blame white people in general. You need to narrow that down to the Democrats. You are something. So let me ask you now, we have, you've been uh, outspoken for, for um, whatever that is, over 10 years anyway. Now there's a movement afoot in America, and I'm sure you've known of Candace Owens and her Lexit, black exit from the Democrat Party. What is your, are, have you been involved in that at all? What's your connection to it? What's your thought about it? I'm not involved in it. I'm not, I'm not connected with it. Uh, I can appreciate it though. And uh, the, my concern with Lexit is, you know, that it's the concept that it's this is a new thing you know and and um you know they're wanting to present themselves as as this new movement and you know i'm not trying to be cynical here but it's not new we there's been a blexit before it happened during the civil war and when you have you know blacks who are who are basically who have walked away or even you know split and if you're leaving out of anger you're, you're disappointed with what uh you know the democrats haven't done and things and, and and stuff like that. But if you don't have a clear direction of where you're going, you will go right back to the Democrat Party. It's happened before. We had blacks that, that were, after the Civil War, freed, were voting Republican, and somehow they went right back to the Democrat Party. And this was before the so-called party switch. Um, and it can happen again. I mean, even the Bible tells you that, hey, this stuff happens. It's the Israelites, hey, they walked away too. And guess yeah. what they wanted to do? They wanted to go right back to Egypt. So, you know, if you don't have a clear understanding of what it is that you're walking toward and a standard of what it is that you're basing your view on, you will walk around in a big circle and you go right back to your oppressors. Well, I love that you, what you've been doing over the years is trying to lay out what conservatism means, what it stands for, why is the right, and I don't, maybe conservative isn't the right word that you would use, but what the values of the Republican Party are that you say are of appeal to everyone, they're they are giving people what they should be walking toward, not just walking indeed, away. Indeed, you know, that's right, that's right. And, you know, and, and, that, and that's where it calls for a standard. And, and definitely conservatism and, and uh, being a Republican is, is, is an ideal fit. It works together. You know, as, as a republic, we, we understand that we enjoy a constitutional republic and we have a set of laws that, that, are, that acknowledge the, the God-given right, uh, our God-given rights. And, you know, we, and we don't want to take liberties with that because once you do, that's where oppression comes in. We have to be conservative with that and stick to the letter of what it says. This is what preserves liberty. And if we could just keep to that. But the problem is, is that we keep trying to define what conservative means to us. We can't do that. We have to agree on what conservatism is, a standard. And I highly recommend that the Bible be that standard, that foundation of what we, what we build it on. That's the preservation of liberty.
It absolutely is. And actually, you make that point in your book, too, about there's, I think there are, in the conservative movement, in the, in the GOP, there are people who kind of want to talk about limited government and low taxation and free enterprise and all sorts of other, they're good things, but they're not rooted in anything that is, that is reliable and consistent. And you frequently, in your writings and your speaking, go back to what the Bible is, teaches as, as really the core of conservatism, GOP, and ultimately really America. Is that right? Indeed, you know, because, you know, when we talk about, you know, making America great, you know, again, I, I, I'm all for it. But what is it that, you know, people think of make, make, makes America great? Is it the economy? Is it, is it having jobs? You know, there's, there's people who have a lot of money who are getting divorced at high rates, they're committing suicide, they're alcoholics, they're drug addicts. So don't tell me that money is what's going to do it. There's people with, with great dream jobs, prestigious. We hear people who have these great jobs and stuff like that, and they're still not satisfied. That's not what it's going to take. That's not the, the uh, staple of what makes America great. Uh, this is something, these are some deep rooted issues that need to be taken care of at its core. Uh, and these are things that I discuss, you know, in my book on how to convey this message, because this translates into uh, illegal immigration, abortion, marriage, um, gun rights. It translates into all of those things of how they can be eroded while we're trying to pursue making America great with with what? With money? A great job? We got to go deeper than that. I love that you say that. And you question your book whether there were some times where you didn't make as much headway in the conservative movement or just in media generally, because talking about the root of, of what you believe in to be America being in the Bible and the Bible's teachings and the truth about the nature of God and man and our rights as, as, as his creation, that makes people uncomfortable. Some people, they just want to say, well, can we just leave the religion part out and just get with, you know, get with my agenda on the following items, tax, uh, you know, tariffs, whatever the list of issues are. And I love that you're saying, no, that's just not enough. That's what you're really saying. It's not deep enough. Indeed. And, and, and this is actually where I, and to take them deeper with me, I agree with them. I say, you're exactly right. We do need to leave the religion out of it. And Jesus would agree with you. Leave the religion out of it. Uh, because religion is, is, is something that we can all do to try to, 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 to shape a merit system for ourselves. And religion is not the measure. The Lord is his statutes are the measure. And these are these. This is not a religion. So, you know, but the thing is, people do want to leave this up because they don't want to they don't want to obey God. You know, they they, they want to be on his good side and, and use God to, to, to say that they're a good person. But it's like, no, that's you're exactly right. That's not enough. It's not what it takes. And we need to obey his instructions on how to make this work. You know, today when I was getting ready for this interview, I just, I went into uh, YouTube, put your name in, went to Google, and I actually got a, a variety of things to come up on YouTube. And I was going to, for our listeners, I'll say, because I can't play them all today, but you've done so much commentary on so many different issues. Like you have one that relates to, you're speaking to your to black Americans saying, why, why would you say that only white people can be racist? You remember, I don't know if you remember that one, but you just, I mean, you have so, and, and a really great description about minimum wage and how it hurts business owners. And, and also, even within the black culture, maybe this is a good one to wrap it up on, but you talk about, in the, in the black culture, uh, the use of the N-word and, and how you say that it's not a healthy thing. I'll tell you a quick, funny aside, for, or interesting aside for you and our listeners. So, in college, 
uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in the law firm. I used to practice law, and I was a bridesmaid in my my friend's wedding. She was a lawyer in the same firm as I was, and I was a bridesmaid in her wedding, and she was a bridesmaid in mine. Well, she's black. She grew up in L.A. and Watts, and so I went up to be at there for the weekend. And so her husband-to-be and all of his friends were there, and they had a big party on the Friday night before the wedding. And it was, a, it was really fun. It was at the mom's house, although she wasn't there. And I had never heard the N-word said so often. I never heard at all, actually. I, I'm, okay, I'm kind of a cupcake. I grew up in upstate New York in a small town. I never heard anyone say that word. So driving home with my husband, I said, I cannot believe all these young men were using that word in a friendly, happy way. And my husband was saying, you know, you're such a cupcake because my husband played a lot of basketball and hanging around in the locker room. He said, it's a very common thing. You know, not that he would ever say it or our son who played college ball. So the same thing, he, they would never say it. But it was such a common thing in black culture that it was kind of, um, it, it wasn't meant in a mean way, but you had some different thought. I could play your clip. I'm just curious, what, or if you want to talk about it, what, what's the reason you say it's not healthy to use the N-word within the black culture? Well, it's definitely not healthy to do uh, because just like you said, they're, they're using it in a friendly manner and so on and so forth. And for them, they, they chalk it up uh, to a, a, term, a term of endearment. But here's the thing. Wait till they get mad at each other. When they get angry, and, and as we, un, unfortunately, within the black community, the highest uh, violent crime rate against uh, uh, with a, within a race within itself is the black community. And when they get to cussing at each other, they're going to throw that N-word around a lot. When they get to throwing blows with each other, they're going to throw that N-word around a lot. And when they get to firing off rounds at each other, they're going to use that word a lot. So it has nothing to do with a term of endearment. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, its core is hatred. So it's not a good thing to say to each other. It's a word that was created. It's basically a, a lazy way of saying Negro, right? Which just means black. There's nothing offensive about the term Negro, but then people got lazy with it and, and used it as a term to dehumanize. You know, some people will say that it's another word you know, out of the English word, you know, uh, uh, out of the English language that it came out there, but there's different, you know, um, etymologies for it. But yeah. the bottom line is, is that it's used to dehumanize someone. When you have black people out there saying it to each other, you're basically they're 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 making it a habit of dehumanizing each other and then blacks wonder why they're probably one of the most insecure races in america they condition each other to be insecure wow i am so glad i asked that question you're you're, you're really a wonderful great thinker we're speaking to you've tuned in late too bad for you we're speaking to alfonso rachel who goes by zoe and the current, so tell us again, tell our people how to find you. You can go to, I mentioned you can just put your name in on YouTube, but people want to follow your videos, re-follow you. If, if you've lost track of him, he hasn't stopped talking about America, conservatism and the goodness of America and the roots in the Bible for America's greatness. But tell people how to find you again. Give them all the reasons why they can do that. Thank you so much. As, uh, my, my website to catch everything is bronzeserpentmedia.com. Just think John uh, 314 through 16. It's got my social media contacts, my book, A Solid Right Cross, uh, uh, my band, 20 Pound Sledge, my commentaries, The Zoloft and The Zopium Den. And I hope to see you there. Okay. You're, I'm sorry, your blog at Zoloft? Yeah, that's my video blog, uh, The Zoloft. Yes. It, it used, when it was on PJTV, it was uh, Zoloft, but I'm on as Zoloft. Okay, I just, first of all, I just want to congratulate and commend you. I love your spirit because you're bringing really serious messages, really important points about America and our culture and lifting people up toward a better life. 
but in an absolutely entertaining way. I, I think you're just wonderful. So thank you. Thank you, thank you. And you know, and, uh, and speaking of entertainment, and I also had a, uh, I played a, in the Gosnell movie, which is another movie, uh, a piece that we're trying to put out there to raise awareness about the horrors of abortion. So if folks, it's out on DVD now, and uh, I played uh, Detective Stark, uh, who is the police partner of uh, Dean Kane's character, Detective Woods. Okay, please let's take, can you have two more minutes? I'm sorry, I'm, I don't, I left my list at home of questions for you, so I'm like winging it here, but uh, on the Gosnell <laughs> movie, we talked mm -hmm. about in the show for the Gosnell movie, it was, it's actually a true story really, uh, related to a doctor whose last name was Gosnell, who was an, it, just a horrifically evil abortionist and what became of having him ultimately arrested, prosecuted, convicted, and sent off to jail was awareness of what really happens inside abortion clinics when it is portrayed by Planned Parenthood as being kind of a, you know, gentle, caring, loving thing. But in the Gosnell movie, first of all, congratulations for being in it. That's cool. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's a number one uh, uh, independent release movie of 2018, and it's a, it's a number one seller right now on uh, uh, Amazon. Yeah, I urge everyone to see the Gosnell movie. What well, had to be actually really emotional, even to play the part of a police officer, it had to be really emotional to do that movie, to act in it, was it? Indeed, you know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, you know, for me, it's not a touchy subject. It's like, I understand it's a touchy subject for other people. It's like, look, it, there's no need to walk on eggshells here. It's like, you, we got people that are getting slaughtered. You know, let's, let's not beat around the bush here. Um, and to, to, do the, to, to do the role, you know, you're, you're in this, you're walking around in a house of horrors. You know, you're seeing a whole bunch of, of bags on the floor and every one of those bags is literally a body bag and they were piled up around this office. And um, it's, it's a horror story. It's not a horror movie, but, um, but it's, this, is, this, isn't, this, isn't, uh, this isn't play, this isn't fiction. I mean, uh, 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 abortion has taken a new leap in New York. It's taken a new leap in Virginia. You can go ahead and give you know, birth to the kid and then go into a waiting room and have a discussion on whether you're gonna let the kid live or not. Oh, I know, we've been off all over that story in the show of the New York law, then the Virginia law, Rhode Island passed it, I think. Virginia got stymied in it because mm -hmm. the American public became aware of it and they just kind of got shamed out of it. But um, back to the Gosnell movie for a moment. I, you know, I, um, I know that there was a uh, lot of public outcry about him, but so abortion is legal I mean, in the state he was performing, it was legal. So what was it he was doing that was illegal? Well, you know, it was the drugs. It was, you know, it's, he had uh, his staff, minors, um, they were dealing drugs out of his clinic. Uh, they were administering, drug, administering drugs and also even uh, inducing the abortion. So there, it was not just the abortion itself but in the manner of unlicensed people doing it. And also, like I said, the, the drug trafficking and stuff like that. That's what uh, got him picked up on radar. But he was doing this for like 17, he was doing his whole practice for over 30 years, but he went untouched by the medical industry, the police, uh, the media, excuse me. He went untouched by these people for like 17 years, just doing what he was doing, slaughtering uh, kids that were birthed. They were birthed. I was gonna say, and they were late term or born baby. So sorry, go ahead, excuse me. No, there's hundreds, maybe even thousands. Yeah, and these are not just, these are late term, partial birth, or actually born alive, going ahead and killing them. That was his practice of medicine. Well, you know, the thing is, is that he, it wasn't even partial birth abortion with him. It, he, he would have the women in, you know, induce labor. He was birthing the babies. 
they were coming out completely. And while they were, you know, alive, breathing, he would, he would, he would kill them. Yeah. I, I'm so grateful that movie was made. I think it opened a lot of eyes in America. I think they've had a lot of sense in America that somehow, especially when it's early term, it's kind of a, well, we don't like it very much, but you know, it's, it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. This really put it right in front of the American people's faces. So I'm, I, I'm glad the movie was made and I really, I, I commend you. Thank you so much for being willing to step up and be in it. You know, it's, uh, somebody's got to do it. I'm, I'm thankful. <laughs> Okay. Well, Zoe, it was so great to talk with you. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. And with that, folks, if you, this guy, I'm telling you, you've got to tune in to him. Find him on social media, on Facebook. You can find him on his website and look at some of the videos he does because he makes the most tender, challenging, uh, deep subjects. He makes many complicated subjects, fun, easy to listen to. He does humor. He, and it's really, it's quite, kind of very much upfront. It's not, I mean, it's, a, it's just a, a staggeringly important. He's really a great figure in America and a great figure to keep in mind when you think the world, no, not very many black conservatives speaking up. This guy's been speaking up. He mentioned 2007 as the earliest time he was on PJTV, but in another video, he'd been talking about how it occurred to him in the music industry in the late 1990s, getting to 2000. He was surrounded by people in the music world who did not agree with anything he thought. And he thought, you know, I've just got to get, I've got to have a way, a means somehow that I can get my message out to the world. So that, my friends, Alfonso, Rachel, Zoe, we're going to take exactly a three-second break. Be right back. Debbie Georgiatis, America Can We Talk. Debbie Georgiatis, and this show is America Can We Talk. I used to do a long segment on my, on my radio show called Cruise Through the News, and I'm not going to exactly do that today, but I want to hit one final story, and I maybe can tiptoe into a couple of other ones. We talked earlier about El Paso yesterday. There was a, um, there were two rallies. There was an enormous rally uh, supporting President Trump and the need for a border wall, and there was a very tiny rally with uh, Beto O'Rourke, for people who don't want to build the wall. And I gave you a bunch of other uh, talking points in the opening dialogue today in the first five about how absurd it is the Democrat Party can say they really do want secure borders. They just don't want to fund the wall. They just don't want to fund adequate beds to keep the illegal border crossers in the in detention facilities while we're processing their applications for asylum. We want to make it impossible for they want to make it impossible for the border patrol to process people, but still say, hey, we swear we really, really were into secure borders. So President Trump, as you know, is considering using his emergency powers to build the wall, have you the military build the wall or in some other emergency order order the securing of the southern border if he cannot get the Democrats to vote adequate funding for him in the budget. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a uh, there was tentative agreement announced today that somehow President Trump will get at least offered from the Congress uh, 1.38 billion out of the 5.7 billion he asked for. Who knows if he'll take it? But I want to mention a couple other things about when I say the Democrats don't want border security. The state of California not any longer governed by Moonbeam, but governed by a similar extreme leftist, Governor Gavin Newsom, 
announced, I think it was yesterday, yes, yesterday, uh, that he is pulling hundreds of National Guard troops from the state's southern border in a rebuke to President Trump's characterization of immigration. He does not like Trump referring to the border insecurity as a border emergency. And he, Gavin Newsom, California governor, called it a manufactured crisis. Newsom's action follows on the heels of a similar decision by the governor of New Mexico, and that is Michelle Grisham, who also pulled most of her state, New Mexico state's troops from the, their National Guard troops from the southern border. She claimed they were only deployed to start with because of Trump's border fear mongering. Now, I got to tell you, folks, this is going to be a defining issue in the 2020 election cycle. We have the Democrats telling you every way they possibly can. We're not going to fund the border. We're not going to fund border security. We want to have ICE abolished, the people who actually enforce immigration ICE. They want to abolish ICE. They want to make it impossible for the Border Patrol to house the people who cross into America illegally. If there ever was, you know, you're told you're supposed to be able to put two plus two and actually get to four, the Democrats don't want you to do that. They want you to hear all these facts that make crystal clear they have no interest in southern border security, no interest in protecting Americans from the human trafficking, drug trafficking, the danger of illegal aliens entering America, and many of them, not all of them, but many of them, some of them turning to crime, committing uh, crimes that lead to the death of innocent American citizens. And the Democrats' answer is, we don't care. You have to be able to get to the four. You have to be able to put the two plus two together and get to four. They don't want border security. They couldn't want border security and take the positions they are taking. And this last little uh, wrap up today before we got a roll, I'm sure Mr. Matt over there is about to signal me and say I have to wrap it up. I don't know why he does that, but <laughs> I just keep talking. No, I don't really. We're about to wrap up. But I do want to say in this last little discussion, uh, Debbie discussed a little segment here. Um, there was this, uh, an announcement out of today out of the Senate the U.S. Senate Intelligence Committee Democrats. Now, as you likely know, the Democrats hold the House. They have a majority in the House. They're in charge of the House Intelligence Committee. And the Senate also has an Intelligence Committee, and Republicans are still in charge of that because the Republicans have the majority. But the Senate Democrats conceded yesterday that after all their investigation, all the digging, all the effort to find anything that tied President Trump to collusion with Russia during the elections, that there is no evidence. Let that sink in. The Democrats in the Senate, who've seen all the evidence you and I haven't seen, all the evidence that people, the insiders have seen, have said there's no evidence at all of Trump-Russia collusion. So you would assume, then, that the attack mob in the Democrat House would decide to drop all of this investigation into Trump and Russia. But I'm telling you folks, it will not end. The Mueller investigation, the investigation uh, by the FBI of this Trump-Russia collusion, Mueller's still out investigating. He's still out charging new people with things related to something they did in fourth grade. He is out attacking every single person in any way affiliated with Trump campaign, trying to find someone to prosecute, convict, and lock up. And this is, 
and now that the leaders in the Senate Democrat have said there's Democrat Party have said there's no evidence of this, you would think a party with some integrity would say, you know what, it's about time to pull the plug on the Mueller investigation. Maybe the Democrat Senate statement will give President Trump a little more courage, maybe give him the courage to say, if he gets his new attorney general confirmed, William Barr, maybe you can say, you know, Attorney General Barr, you know, it's about time to pull the plug on Mueller. But really, you should, I, I want Americans to think about this. Since before President Trump was inaugurated, before he actually became president, from the moment he won the election, the Democrat Party, many top echelon leaders in the Department of Justice and the FBI have spent this entire time between then, between the elections of November 2016 and where we are now in February 2019, trying day after day after day after day to implant in the minds of Americans that President Trump is an illegitimate president, that he really didn't win the election because somehow there was collusion, somehow he cheated. This is what the Democrats have wanted the American people to think. Now that the Senate Democrats have admitted there's nothing there, now that Mueller, after $22 trillion, I think it is, now that he's spent, no, billion, excuse me, billion, 22, no, million, I'm sorry, I don't want to ever say anything about 22 million that the Mueller investigation has spent on this investigation, no evidence whatsoever. Where are the moral leaders of the Democrat Party to finally say it's time we call it quits? It's time we stop this charade in the media that Trump was illegitimately elected. It's time we stop this incessant talk about impeaching him because he was illegitimately elected. Where are the voices of reason and truth inside the Democrat Party leadership? And I'm telling you, they don't exist. If they can drag this out, if they can continue their, their charade with Mueller and et cetera, they will do it and we'll still be in this battle. But it's, what would really help more than anything is if the American people began pinging, texting, calling, emailing their own representatives and saying, drop this Trump-Russia collusion thing. Get on with your job, Congress. Get on with your job, U.S. House. Don't spend the next two years investigating Trump's tax returns and Trump's business deals and everything in Trump's life. Stop doing, stop thinking your job is to get Trump and make your job to do your elected job as members of the U.S. Congress to go about the business of the people, fixing the tax code, fixing the immigration code. Do actually do what you're elected to do. The Democrats don't want to because all they want to do for two years is to stall and stall till they get to 2020. They think they maybe can win the, the, the uh, White House back. This is an interesting time to live. I can encourage you strong enough to be involved, be, be one of the people up on the issues, tuned into the facts, tuned into the American political conversation, be part of the political conversation to save this country. I'm Debbie Georges. This is America Can We Talk. That's it for today's show. Tune in every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time to this show. And if you're on Facebook, like this page, share this page, review this page. If you're watching on YouTube, follow me there. And above all and everything else, speak up for this precious, extraordinary country, America. Talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth About America.